This court is supposed to stand for affirming or expanding rights, not taking them away. Worries that after overturning Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court could take aim at same-sex marriage. It is Monday, June 27th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, critics zero in on comments from Justice Clarence Thomas, where he appeared to call for the overturning of rulings related to same-sex marriage, sodomy, and even birth control. Also, how inflation has become a global problem. If you line up the 30 richest countries in the world and look at what has happened to inflation there over the past 15 months, we're actually totally in the range of normal. And G7 leaders meet in Germany focused largely on the war in Ukraine. It's 401. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More legal challenges are underway to block states from enforcing anti-abortion laws that were triggered when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week. NPR Sarah McCammon reports on a state judge's temporary restraining order in Louisiana. The order comes in response to a lawsuit filed on behalf of Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, Louisiana. The clinic's administrator says the center will soon resume abortions in response to the order. The judge has set a court date for July 8th and has ordered Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry not to enforce the state's abortion bans before that date. NPR Sarah McCammon reporting. Arkansas is among the first states where abortion bans went into effect. The lead physician of Little Rock Planned Parenthood, Dr. Janet Cathy, tells the ABC podcast Start Here. Her office was forced to cancel appointments less than an hour after the court's decision came down. There were patients who were mad. There were patients who cried. There were patients who said, I'm so sorry for you all. In Mississippi, Attorney General Lynn Fitch certified the Supreme Court ruling, which means nearly all abortions will be outlawed in Mississippi in 10 days. The House committee investigating last year's attack on the U.S. Capitol holds its next hearing tomorrow. That was unexpected. Here's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Leaders of the House Select Committee said after last week's two hearings, they were postponing future hearings until mid-July. But now the panel says it will hold a public session on Tuesday to, quote, present recently obtained evidence and receive witness testimony. The panel has not announced the topic of that evidence or who will testify. Last week, the committee met behind closed doors with Alex Holder, a filmmaker who had access to then-President Trump and his family. It has also been in touch about interviewing Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, about her contacts with administration officials regarding efforts to alter the outcome of the 2020 election. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile struck a busy shopping center today, killing at least two people, wounding many more. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says over a thousand people were in the shopping center in Kremenchuk at the time of the attack. He posted a video of the burning building. At the United Nations, spokesperson Stefan Dejari couldn't immediately confirm the casualty figures. But it is deplorable, to say the least. Uh, any sort of civilian infrastructure, which includes obviously shopping malls and civilians, should never ever be targeted. The U.N. Secretary General has been pushing for a ceasefire and trying to negotiate an arrangement to help Ukraine export grain, which is vital for many countries around the world. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. 
The Dow is down 62 points at last check. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Black drivers in Suffolk County are pulled over by police for minor traffic violations at more than twice the rate of white drivers. That's according to a report by the nonprofit Vera Institute of Justice for the county. WBUR's Jack Mitchell has more. The analysis focused on small infractions, like expired license plates or tinted windows. Senior researcher Saliki Flingai says cities and states should consider barring police from making these kinds of routine stops. Many high-profile police shootings of black drivers are the consequence of these stops. It's really important that we think about the life and death importance of minimizing police contact through this kind of minor stop. The findings differ from a government study of all police stops statewide. That report found no evidence police in Massachusetts were more likely to pull over non-white drivers using a technique widely used to detect racial bias. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. State lawmakers have approved a temporary budget filed by Governor Charlie Baker last week. The measure is now back on the governor's desk awaiting his signature. The $6 billion plan would keep the state operating through July with the new fiscal year starting Friday. Lawmakers still need to hash out a new annual budget. Findings by the Federal Transit Administration that were critical of some safety issues on the MBTA have been helpful, according to the governor. Among the FTA concerns, understaffing and operations control center shifts that were too long. Baker says the ball is now in the T's court. All the positions that currently aren't filled at the T are funded. They're funded positions. The T's biggest problem at this point is getting people into those roles and those responsibilities and making it happen. Baker says lost revenue due to low ridership during the pandemic is also a concern. He says legislation will be filed by the end of the year to address that issue. Today's rain showers aren't expected to put much of a dent in drought conditions across much of Massachusetts. The state's drought monitor shows 93% of the state has abnormally dry or moderate drought conditions. Areas most, inf- most affected include Suffolk, Essex, Norfolk, and Bristol counties. In the forecast, cloudy with showers tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs around 80. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds that most Americans oppose the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been digging into the numbers, and he's here in the studio with us. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Ari. Uh, tell us about what the survey shows. Well, 56% said that they opposed the court's ruling. That includes about 9 in 10 Democrats, a majority of independents, and 1 in 5 Republicans. Now, we didn't see much of a gender gap here. Both women and men were opposed to the ruling, but the biggest divide was by education. There was a 40-point gap between college graduates who opposed the ruling and those without degrees who are split. Uh, majorities are also concerned that the court will now reconsider rulings that protect other rights, like contraception and 
same-sex relationships. Suburban women in particular said they were concerned about this. That's a warning sign for Republicans because it's a group they've really been targeting in this election on issues related to COVID and education. You mentioned the election. How might this impact voter turnout? Well, a strong majority said that they are now more likely to vote, but it's far and away Democrats who are the most fired up. Almost 8 in 10 Democrats said they're more likely to vote now compared to only about half of Republicans. That's a big deal because with inflation and gas prices, Republicans have been so heavily favored to take back the House. Uh, Here's Lee Miringoff, director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, uh, which conducted the poll on why this matters. I would not in any way underestimate the magnitude of what this decision is from the court because it's going to play out not only at the national level, but in terms of state representatives suddenly now become more important because the state rules might play a role in what the future policies are. So there's a potential for this ruling to upend things up and down the ballot. We just don't know how that's going to play out. It's why you see so many Republicans being cautious about how to react. They really don't want this front and center. If the court seems so out of step with where voters are, does the poll say anything about the idea of court packing, adding justices to neutralize the court's conservative supermajority? Well, it is something that obviously progressives have been pushing with Democratic leadership, but a majority of respondents are not in favor of taking that step. Just a third say they want to see that happen. And there's a real gap between Democrats and everyone else here. 62% of Democrats are on board with that, but only 20, 29% of independents are. If progressives and Democrats really are going to stem the tide of this conservative cultural shift that's underway, it's going to likely have to take place at the ballot box. I have to say, though, it's a really odd situation to have one side, Democrats continuously winning the popular vote in presidential elections, for example, in increasingly large numbers, and to have public opinion largely on their side on major cultural issues like abortion and gun safety regulation. And yet they're susceptible to losing presidential elections because of the Electoral College. And we're seeing the Supreme Court pushing the country culturally in an opposite direction. It really is stretching the fabric of the country and casting doubt on on trust in a lot of the systems. And so do you expect that these midterms are going to be much more volatile? uh, Is it going to be fought over abortion on the Supreme Court? I think undoubtedly we're going to have to wait and see, watch what's going to happen here, because it is introducing a ton of volatility. We're seeing lots of activism taking place. And that can only mean that, uh, you know, Republicans are on their back heels a little bit when it comes to this issue, because Republicans I've talked to have said they really just don't want this to be a thing that they have to message against because they're not sure how to handle it. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome. Last Friday, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, eliminating the constitutional right to abortion after nearly 50 years. Though Justice Samuel Alito emphasized that the decision was about abortion specifically, a concurring opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas has many people concerned about whether other established rights could soon disappear. Jim Obergefell was the plaintiff in the 2015 case Obergefell v. Hodges, which established a right to same-sex marriage. Jim Obergefell, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's great to be back on. I wish it were under better circumstances. Now, the last time we spoke with you, you told us your thoughts on what was then a leaked draft opinion. Now, the court has overturned Roe. What was your reaction when the decision was handed down? Well, you know, my immediate reaction was, what a dark day for rights in America to have the highest court in the land for the first time ever take back a right that it had previously affirmed, and to know that women in our nation can now no longer control decisions about their own body because of government overreach, government intrusion. And then to read that concurring opinion by Clarence Thomas, 
just made me even more concerned about the future of civil rights in our nation and especially for the LGBTQ plus community, given the, the cases that he mentioned, in addition to the continued attacks on women's rights. All right, let's talk about that a little bit. The majority opinion written by Justice Alito, it doesn't stray far from the leaked draft, and it included language that this decision specifically deals with abortion. It doesn't carry on to other rights. And when you were on the show earlier in June, you said that you did not take comfort in that assurance. I want to ask you, do you still feel that way? Absolutely. Why should we take any comfort in those words in that decision when many of these justices who have now decided to strike down a woman's right to control her own body, during their confirmation hearings, they were either not fully truthful or they lied under oath saying that they considered Roe versus Wade, the right to an abortion, precedent. I won't believe anything that comes out from this court, at least the extreme majority on this court, for that very reason. There's no reason to believe them. They have proven they they cannot be trusted. Now, public opinion is firmly in support of same-sex marriage, and support for same-sex marriage is higher today than it was in 2015 when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Does that fact give you any sort of reassurance that there is not an appetite, publicly at least, for overturning this issue? I wish I could say it did. However, public opinion is on the side of women having the right to an abortion, women having the right to control the decisions made about their body. And yet that certainly did not sway this court. This court is determined to take our nation backward. And now that one right has been lost, other rights are at risk. And this court will continue to drag us down an extreme right-wing path that will take our nation backwards. And that is wrong. This court is supposed to stand for equal justice under law. This court is supposed to stand for affirming or expanding rights not taking them away. So there has been a lot of conversation recently and a lot more since Dobbs was handed down that rights that are protected by the 14th Amendment should be codified by Congress. And I want to ask you, is that something that you and other LGBTQ advocates are preparing to push for? Without a doubt, Wano, Congress must act. If Congress can't step up and say these are the rights we believe in, these are the the fundamental rights, the human rights, the civil rights that deserve protection, if not from the Supreme Court under law, then what is worth fighting for? So yes, we will absolutely be pushing for Congress to come out in support and to propose legislation that will protect these rights. And if we can't get that at the federal level, well, that's also something we need to be working hard to do at the state level. I want to ask you quickly about the chance for reforms passing at the federal level in Congress, where we know that Democrats have slim majorities. They have been unable to pass a number of major legislative priorities. Do you feel confident that you might be able to see some of these protections codified at the federal level? I want to feel confident. However, given some of the votes that have happened in Congress and knowing that we have been unable to get all Democrats, all members of that caucus to vote in support of things that the American people support, I sincerely do worry. I can only hope that there are Republicans who do believe in equal justice under law, who do believe in welcoming everyone in this nation as part of we the people, who would step up and do the right thing and support that type of proposal.
You have been an advocate for some time now. I wonder, what do you say to young people, perhaps even young queer people who are in this moment feeling discouraged, hopeless, concerned, what other rights might be eliminated right now? I will say this, you have every right to feel discouraged, to feel afraid, because honestly, I do as well. But I also reconnected with a a friend, her name is Sarah. She reached out to say, Jim, my son David started to cry in the car this morning. Back when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court, he was worried about the future. Would he lose the right to marry? And she asked what I would say to him, how I could give him hope. And I say this to David, his mom, Sarah, and every other young person out there. It's okay to be afraid, but just know that I am out there fighting for the things that are right, the things that are just, the things that matter, and I am far from alone. There are so many people and organizations out there doing the same thing, but we also need your help. Use your voice, contact your elected officials, do everything you can to make sure your voice is heard, and most importantly, vote, because the only way our government and our judiciary will reflect us as a nation is if we all vote and we elect the people who share our values. We elect the people who believe in equal justice under law and we the people for everyone, not just the few. So vote in every single election as soon as you are able. But just know there are so many people out there who are fighting this important fight and we will not stop because we owe it to the future generations to do everything we can to make it a better world for them. That's Jim Obergefell. He was the plaintiff in the landmark case Obergefell versus Hodges that established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Juana. Glad to be on. The expansion of NATO was a driving factor in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the alliance is holding its biggest summit in years. Front and center, how to end a war that has hurt economies around the world, while also admitting new members to NATO. We'll preview the summit in Madrid tomorrow on Morning Edition. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, how inflation's affected not just the U.S., but much of the world over the last year plus. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Margulies Peruzzi. Designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. In business news, a French drug maker with its U.S. headquarters in Cambridge is buying a Massachusetts-based cancer treatment firm. The deal will see Ipsen SA acquire Epizyme for about $247 million. Epizyme has had its share of recent struggles, missing revenue targets and laying off about 12% of its workforce in March. On Wall Street, stocks lost ground. The Dow was down 61 points at 31,439. NASDAQ fell 83 points, and the S&P dropped 11 points. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Building Restoration Services, diagnosing and repairing building envelope and water intrusion problems. Consultation scheduling at brsboston.com. Remember, it is your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser. Your $10 a month gift becomes $30 a month for a year when you give now at wbur.org. In the forecast, we'll see clouds and scattered showers early tonight before the clouds start to move out with lows right around 60 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, highs right around 80. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. TotalWine.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Right now, we are all paying quite a bit more for pretty much everything. And yeah, when gas or food or housing gets too expensive, people get angry, right? And they want to know who or what exactly is to blame for this inflation. Well, that depends on who you ask. Labor shortage, that's been driving up wages, 48%. Demand for goods and services that outpaces supply. It's the Democrats. It's AOC. It's Bernie Sanders. You know, it's, it's the Democrat Congress. Supply chain problems is the number one source of inflation. It's Joe Biden's policies that are creating these dramatically higher prices. We're going to make sure that everybody knows Exxon's prophecy. Exxon made more money than God this year. All right, let's fact check these claims about inflation with Josh Bivens, director of research with the Economic Policy Institute. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, can we start with the president right there, what we just heard him say about oil companies? I mean, basically what Biden is saying is that these oil companies and other businesses are jacking up prices more than they need to to make up for higher expenses due to, say, like supply shortages. Is there data to back up that claim? Yeah. I mean, especially for kind of the first year of the inflationary shock, basically from like very early 2021 to the end of 2021, if you track profit margins, those profit margins got much fatter and they actually reached historically high levels um, by the end of 2021. So definitely the rise of profits definitely is a big part of why prices jumped in 2021, especially. Is it connected to inflation or it's partly causing inflation, these increasing profit margins? I think it's fair to say they're a cause. I mean, if it was just the case that they were passing on any cost in their own production to customers, you would say that's not really their fault. They're just taking the costs and passing them on. They're not just passing them on. They're also increasing their profit margin. So they're taking whatever increase in costs they're experiencing. They're adding to it. And it turns out they're adding enough. The profit margins were getting so much fatter. The profits were contributing a really historically high share to the growth in prices in 2021. Interesting. Okay, well, another claim is that wage increases are also helping drive inflation. The theory being employers are paying employees more, partly because of more labor organizing. And as a result of that, businesses have to raise prices. How feasible is that theory? 
in my mind, mostly not feasible. So it's true that like if wages had just not grown at all mm -hmm. over the past 15 months, inflation would be a bit lower today. But it turns out inf wage growth has always been lagging far behind overall inflation. So it means on the one hand, workers' real wages, their inflation adjusted wages, they're actually going down. And also every time wage growth comes in beneath overall inflation, it's actually serving as an anchor on inflation. It's actually trying to drag it back down to a more normal level. And over the entire course of the past 15 months, wage growth has been coming in slower than overall inflation. It's one of the things in the economy that is seeing less growth than everything else that is connected to overall prices. Hmm. Well, there's also blame directed at the federal government and, and all the federal spending on pandemic relief like Stimulus checks, small business loans, uh, child tax credits, pauses in student loan payments, etc. The argument is, I understand, like if there's more money out there to be spent, there's more demand and prices will rise. Is there truth in that? Inflation is global. There's been an acceleration yeah. of core inflation across every advanced economy, even the ones that did very, very little fiscal relief. Um, and so I think the evidence linking specific Biden era policies to the surge in inflation is just really, really weak. And we should know, like, there's also been a war going on in Ukraine. It seems like that has had a noticeable effect, right? Like, especially for things made or grown or found in Russia and or Ukraine. Right. Totally. In terms of household budgets, oil and food is just dominating yeah. everything else in terms of the, the pain they're seeing. And those are shocks that are big enough that they do set off ripple effects. I mean, when oil and food prices just go through the roof, there is a scramble among other people in the economy to try to protect themselves. So mm -hmm. workers really do try to get higher wages in response to that to hold themselves harmless. They're not fully successful, but wages do go up a bit. And so I think it's mostly these shocks, the pandemic and war shocks and some ripple effects. I don't think it's just a consistent set of policy mistakes that we need to unwind. I think what we yeah. need to have happen is the shocks need to stop. That's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, because if you step back and look at this broader picture, like you said, inflation's a global problem. Meanwhile, there is a war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, there's also a pandemic. There are also trade wars going on. I mean, given all of these different factors, these shocks, as you say, are U.S. companies or the U.S. government really making inflation particularly worse here compared to elsewhere in the world? So I'd say we're like if you line up like the 30 richest countries in the world and look at what has happened to inflation there over the past 15 months, we're like in the, the top third. So it's mm -hmm. been a little worse here than like on average or the median, but we're not an outlier. And so we're actually totally in the range of normal. And I think the reason for that is what you just said. A lot of the shocks you just mentioned, they're not U.S. specific. They're not U.S. specific policy failures. They are shocks that have hit global markets, and we've been caught up in that. Josh Bivens, Research Director at the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Department of Education is settling a case that will grant almost $6 billion in debt relief to students. They allege that unscrupulous, mostly for-profit colleges deceive them into overpaying for often useless degrees. Many of these students were veterans swindled out of their GI Bill educational benefits, and now they're celebrating that decision. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. Jared Toma served in the U.S. Army and then planned to become an engineer when he got out. But he says DeVry University, a for-profit school, drained his GI Bill benefits and encouraged him to take out tens of thousands more in loans. Then he graduated in 2015. Well, what's the degree worth? It's not even worth the paper it's printed on. I've had an extremely hard time finding employment. 
The Trump administration's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, repealed rules that required schools to prove their degrees led to gainful employment. And her department fought this class action lawsuit, which the Biden administration has now settled in U.S. District Court. Kerry Wofford is with Veterans Education Success. This is a huge deal for many students who were tricked and deceived and cheated by really lousy, mostly for-profit colleges. This is not student debt cancellation for any student. This is only if you were cheated. Also, schools have a limit on how much federal money they can take. But for years, there was a loophole. GI Bill money didn't count against that quota. That made veterans a highly profitable target, says Wofford. These veterans like Jared Toma, who were just totally targeted for their GI Bill and targeted in really ugly ways. Now, Toma and his family are about $50,000 out of the red. He's been carrying that debt around for seven years. I was at a loss for words. I was in shock, disbelief, really ecstatic. I, I told my wife first thing. I'm still at a loss for words. I can't believe it's finally at some sort of resolution. And uh, I feel vindicated. The Department of Education says it will send billions of dollars of automatic relief to about 200,000 borrowers in the class action lawsuit. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. With the summer travel season in full swing, airlines are canceling flights and stranding passengers every day. One reason behind the cancellations? There are simply not enough pilots. On the next All Things Considered, we'll talk to a pilot about the shortage and whether travelers can expect relief anytime soon. That's tomorrow afternoon on NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the G7 Summit today in Germany. Coming to City Space tonight at 6.30 p.m., historian Jessica B. Harris, author of High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. Tickets at WBUR.org events. In the forecast, cloudy with showers tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60, right now 72 degrees in Boston. Reverend Willie Bodrick II is the head pastor at 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury. And we had been talking about leading with the tradition of the black church behind him. And then I asked him, okay, but what about where you buck the traditions? Bringing a vaccine clinic to 12th Baptist Church, despite much well understood skepticism and concern in his parish community, which is a predominantly black parish community, about trusting the healthcare system. We did a fireside chat. Uh, you know, I don't have a beautiful studio, but I have a beautiful sanctuary where we brought in physicians to kind of answer live all the questions. And we stayed there as long as we needed to, to correct any misinformation, to deal with the distrust, and to acknowledge the pain. Understanding people's trepidations strengthens us across our communities. My name is Tiziana Deering. I'm the host of Radio Boston. Give monthly at WBUR.org, and thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The NATO alliance is planning to increase the size of its rapid reaction forces nearly eightfold to 300,000 troops. This comes as Western leaders pledge their continued support for Ukraine after Russia invaded the country. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more on NATO's planned announcement. In peacetime, these forces are generally under national command but are meant to be deployed quickly in an emergency. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says it will be the biggest overhaul of the organization since the end of the Cold War. 
Leaders of NATO's 30 member states will discuss these changes at their summit in Madrid. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz. Local authorities say at least 13 people were killed today in central Ukraine after Russian missile strikes on a crowded shopping mall. Georgia could soon see most abortions outlawed after the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, a state law there that bans abortion around six weeks has been prevented from taking effect. But, as Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, a federal appeal is moving forward. Abortion is still legal in Georgia, up to about 20 weeks of gestation. But a federal appeals court indicated Friday that it would soon rule on the state's abortion law, which bans most abortions once cardiac activity can be detected around six weeks, which is before many women even realize they're pregnant. That's troubling to Savannah resident Stephanie Jones, who has two preteen kids. I'm concerned about when they come of age that my children would have a mistake and them not being able to have healthy options for how to manage should a pregnancy happen. Republican Governor Brian Kemp praised the Supreme Court's ruling, while his Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams said she's enraged by it. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah, Georgia. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 62 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. While expressing disappointment in last week's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Governor Charlie Baker is indicating Massachusetts will use the ruling to attract businesses to the Bay State. More now from WBUR Steve Brown. The governor says his executive order will keep abortion providers here in Massachusetts safe from prosecution elsewhere. He says it will also protect and provide relief for people from other states who come here seeking abortions. Baker's also hoping his actions might have a positive economic impact on the state. There may in fact be a big opportunity here for Massachusetts to encourage some employers to either come here or expand their footprint here because we are a state that takes this issue seriously and will be there for their employees when they need those kinds of reproductive services and supports. The governor says he's confident an increase in funding for clinic security will pass the legislature and be signed into law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A new poll finds a majority of Massachusetts residents have growing economic concerns. Almost two-thirds of respondents in a UMass WCVB poll say they would describe their personal economic situation as either fair or poor. Top concerns among the 1,000 residents polled include rising inflation, an unstable economy, and a tight and more expensive housing market. Meantime, the average price of gasoline in Massachusetts has dropped below $5 a gallon in the past week. AAA says the average statewide average is now $4.93 a gallon. In Metro Boston, the average price of the pump is $5.11. The islands continue to have the state's highest average prices, with Nantucket at $6.13 a gallon and Martha's Vineyard at $6.04. A heads up, if you plan on driving along Storrow Drive in Boston later today, there will be intermittent lane closures in both directions between the BU and Longfellow bridges. Those closures will be in effect from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. for street light work along the roadway. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. 
and the ICA watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at ICABoston.org. Sports Red Sox start a three-game set with the Blue Jays up in Toronto tonight. Forecast says clouds and scattered showers early before the clouds move out overnight with lows right around 60. Mostly sunny skies tomorrow, highs right around 80 degrees. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, Social Security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol will hold its next hearing tomorrow afternoon. That's a new development. The panel had not planned another hearing until next month. But now they say we'll hear, quote, recently obtained evidence and witness testimony. Last week, some of the most powerful testimony came from top Trump administration Justice Department officials. The second in command, Richard Donahue, told the committee that senior officials had to tell the former president they couldn't simply change the election outcome. He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And former acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. How close do you think the country came to a constitutional crisis last January? I think that there were a number of uh, possibilities there that could have drawn us into a constitutional crisis, certainly Vice President Pence had acted differently, and I think there were other sort of danger zones along the way. That said, I do think that one thing we should take away from this is that the institutions held. They did exactly what they're designed to do because the institutions are designed to avoid that. They held under great stress. You described the president attempting to replace acting attorney general Jeff Rosen with someone named Jeffrey Clark, who seemed willing to pursue Trump's false claims of election fraud. What did it take to talk Trump out of that decision? As we described in the testimony, it was about a three hour meeting in the Oval Office and the president was taking input from a variety of people. But we did talk the pros and cons of what would happen here. What are the real world implications of putting that person, Jeff Clark, in into the seat. And as I said, we were relieved that at the end of the day, he did what we thought was the right thing. The quote that stood out to me was, you said hundreds of people would resign and effectively he would be overseeing a graveyard. That, that, was, that was a big part of the conversation, to be sure, to explain to him what the real world implications would be within the department. Certainly, we went beyond that as well. Despite the stand that you and others took in January, the Justice Department at that point had already seemed willing to help Trump allies. In 2020, the department rolled back its prosecution of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, even though he had pleaded guilty in the Russia probe. Do you think you and others at Justice had done enough to resist political pressure from Trump by the time he was pushing his election lies? Well, I I was involved in the Flynn matter uh, specifically, so I, I can't really comment on that. But the reality is at the end of the day, It was made very clear to the president that the department is not in any way uh, a political actor and that the the department's commitment is to the facts and the law. One big question that's loomed over the January 6th committee and the current Justice Department 
is whether prosecutors should pursue a criminal investigation against the former president. Based on what you know, what you saw, do you think there is a sound legal case to be made that Donald Trump committed a crime? I certainly don't have access to all the evidence they do. That said, I would certainly urge caution. You would need a very, very solid case before proceeding. I think criminal intent is required. And so you still need to prove that at the end of the day, the person uh, knew that they were up to no good. And it's a difficult thing in normal circumstances. It would be a particularly difficult thing with this personality, this president, and these circumstances. You said one of the lessons you take away from what happened in January was that the systems held, the institutions withstood the assault on democracy. But another lesson that one could take away from it is that the lessons that Donald Trump and his supporters and enablers learned in 2021 will be applied the next time around. Does that concern you? Do you think that's a legitimate fear? It is something I'm concerned about. I think there are a lot of lessons learned uh, across the board here. One of the criticisms was that the states had policies and procedures put in place, ostensibly in response to COVID, that were not approved by the state legislators and that the Constitution requires that the state legislature set the election procedures. And I leave it to the court to decide that. But there's work to be done all around. I I mean, to the contrary, what we're seeing is people who endorse the big lie getting elected to statewide office, becoming secretary of state, state legislators. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an issue for concern, no doubt about it. But all the more reason for state legislators to be active and putting in place the very clear procedures in advance of any election. Former Acting Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, a witness in the House Select Committee's investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Ari. Women make up nearly one in five service members in the U.S. military, and many of them are now required to serve in states where abortions are banned. The Defense Department says it's working to develop policies to support those women. But as NPR's Brian Mann reports, many women don't believe they'll be protected. Mid-morning Bailey Thurby, a soldier stationed at Fort Drum near Watertown, New York, is at a farmer's market a few miles from her base. She's furious about last week's Supreme Court decision. I think it's horrible. Um, they're, they're bringing the church into the government, which is what not what our country was not founded on. Religious freedom is what our country was founded on and is what I fight for. Abortion services are still legal here, but many of the nation's biggest military bases are located in parts of the U.S. where abortions are now banned under state law and soldiers are moved around a lot in their careers. I asked Thurby how she would react if ordered to serve in one of those bases. I would not be comfortable at all. Personally, I don't want kids at all, and due to my sexuality, if I were to have a kid, it would be very traumatic for me. Under federal law, abortion services are provided within the military health care system in extremely rare cases. Women who want abortions almost always have to go off base. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin released a statement after Roe was struck down, saying the military is, quote, evaluating our policies to ensure we continue to provide seamless access to reproductive health. But many military women, service members and spouses are skeptical. Any optimism or any hope now that the military will handle this the right way is incredibly fleeting to the point that it's really not even worth considering. This is a former soldier and West Point graduate who's married to an Army officer. She asked her name not be used because she fears speaking out on such a politically and culturally fraught issue could impact her husband's career in the military. 
She believes any abortion-related promises made now by the military could be quickly reversed if a Republican administration takes over. She also fears women service members will face new pressure from officers, often men, who wield significant influence over medical care sought by those under their command. How you approach the situation as a woman who needs reproductive care will vary enormously depending on who your commander is, depending on what you know about their you know, religious persuasions, their political persuasions. Military women interviewed for this story say even if the Defense Department accommodates women who wish to travel for abortions, those medical services won't be covered by the military's health insurance program. That means serious financial burdens for military families who are often low income. Back at the farmer's market near Fort Drum, Chantal Bogey is buying pizza for her two kids. She's the wife of a career soldier, and she, too, is angry. I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't see why a bunch of men get a say in what women do for religious reasons. It makes no sense. Bogie says she and her husband expect to be ordered to serve in states where abortions are banned before his career is over. They've already discussed what they'll do. I'm originally from Colorado, so no, if I desperately decided I wanted one, I'd just go home. But Bogie says many women in the military community can't rely on family living in states where abortion remains legal for that kind of support. Brian Mann, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Russian missiles hit an apartment block in Kyiv yesterday, and that added to the sense of urgency for world leaders at the G7 summit today. It's being held in the German Alps, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky joined by video link. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is at the G7, and she joins us now. Hey, Tam. Hi. So what did Zelensky ask the leaders for? I got a chance, along with a small group of other reporters, to talk to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan after that meeting that Zelensky joined. And he said that Zelensky and the leaders were able to have an extended back and forth via video feed about the state of the war in Ukraine and Zelensky's strategy going forward. And Sullivan told us that Zelensky expressed an urgency to end the war. He said the Ukrainian president asked for economic aid, but he was also looking for something very specific, especially after that missile attack yesterday. At the top of his mind was the set of missile strikes that took place in Kyiv and other cities across Ukraine and, and his desire to get additional air defense capabilities that could shoot down Russian missiles out of the sky. So the president was able, able to be positively responsive to him on that. Zelensky's request for defense and economic assistance wasn't a surprise, and, and President Biden came uh, ready to say that the U.S. will provide $7.5 billion in financial assistance. And Sullivan said that the U.S. is very close to finalizing a deal for a security assistance package that includes air defense capabilities. Tam, as I understand, you've learned a little bit about this package. What else does it include? Yeah, so while Sullivan wouldn't get into the details, a source familiar with the package told me that later this week, President Biden is expected to announce that the U.S. is buying a Norwegian advanced surface-to-air missile system uh, to assist Ukraine in its defense. And I was curious why the U.S. would look to Norway for this kind of system. And what I learned is that it's actually used in Washington, D.C., this very type of system, 
to protect the White House. Uh, Mark Kansian is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and he described it to me. What this system does is it takes an anti-air missile that has been used on aircraft and it puts it in a box and puts it on the ground. Kansian is a former longtime Defense Department official, and obviously he is simplifying a bit here, but that box includes a sophisticated ground radar system. And he told me that this makes sense to give to Ukraine because it will give them more range and a greater ability to defend against Russian cruise missiles. But it also isn't overly complicated. Still, he says there are likely to be technical challenges, for instance, uh, if the radar system needs repair. These G7 leaders are meeting at a time when their economies have all been hit quite hard by the huge spike in energy prices, which is a result of the sanctions on Russia over the war in Ukraine. How are they addressing oil prices and inflation? The White House says that leaders are close to agreeing in principle to pursue oil price caps. And this is a new idea. It's an effort to starve Russia of a major source of funding for its war effort, exports of oil. Some countries like the U.S. have stopped buying Russian oil, but those that continue to purchase the oil are paying really high prices, which essentially rewards Russia. Uh, Sullivan said that there are a lot of details to work out about how this cap would be implemented. That is not going to be worked out at this meeting, but those are things that finance ministers and energy ministers could start sorting out after this G7 is over. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith in Germany traveling with the president. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, host Juana Summers shares some of the interests she brings to the table, from the issue of gun violence to pinball. Then, next hour, the future of the anti-abortion movement, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Remember, it is your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser. Your $10 a month gift becomes $30 a month for a year when you give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, cloudy with showers early tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs around 80. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 449. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC, the region's leading technology industry group, and the power behind Boston Tech Jam and the Tech Top 50 Awards. More at MassTLC.org. And Lexus Broadway in Boston presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House, now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Companies have started offering to pay for their employees if they have to travel to get abortions, but... These programs aren't likely to reach most of the people, the overwhelming majority of people who are going to need to access abortion care. I'm Kai Riznal, Women and Poverty and Reproductive Health, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's a big day for us here at NPR because, as you've probably heard over the last few months, we've had a lot of guest hosts rotating through the studio, anchoring All Things Considered. 
And today, we officially get to welcome you, Juana, as our new permanent full-time host of the show. So on behalf of Elsa Chang, Mary Louise Kelly, and all of the editors, producers, directors, and other good folks who make up this team, let me just say how excited we are to have you join us for good. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm really excited to actually be in studio with you today. If I, it's the first time in more than two years that I have physically shared the studio with another host. Listen, our, our audience has gotten to know you over the years as a journalist who covers stories about politics and demographics. Uh, this is a side of you that they are familiar with. At a church in Northwest Philly, people trickled through the courtyard, eager to hear from the house. Here's Juana Summers reports. A group of seven black women posed for a photo on the steps in front of the Supreme Court in 2011. A Western North Carolina congressional district held by a Democrat was redrawn to become deeply red. So, Anna, that is a side of you that people know well, and we're looking forward to more great political reporting from you on our air. But the thing about hosting All Things Considered <laughs> is you get to consider all the things. So we're going to take a few minutes now to learn more about what you get excited about apart from politics. And am I right that right up at the top of the list is pinball? That is right. It is very high at the top of the list. I fell in love with pinball six or seven years ago in the back of a Mexican restaurant in Baltimore. It's a place where the walls are painted these bright orange and deep teal colors. And on any given day, you can probably hear music playing faintly overhead. Though some late nights, metal and punk bands take center stage. At the back of the restaurant, I'm surrounded by a dozen pinball machines. And each is from a different time period, and each tells a different story. And for the price of a few quarters, you get to unlock them. Get in here, player one. Now, I did not grow up begging my mom to head to the local arcade. I got into pinball in my early 20s with my now husband. When we first started playing, it was just a casual game or two. We'd see machines crowded into the corner of dive bars and badly play them while we talked about all kinds of stuff. But it didn't take long before the bells and chimes and the rhythmic flapping of plastic flippers drew me in. And it made it more than just a way to kill some time. Soon, I was regularly trading dollar bills for pockets full of quarters and studying complex play fields, learning how to sequence shots to get the results I wanted. These games span decades, and a lot of them are older than me. In my opinion, some of the earlier eras of games have the most satisfying sounds in gameplay. Take a listen to Jungle Queen. It came out in 1977. Now, if you listen closely, you can hear the whir of the scoring wheels advancing as we play, and the thuds as the metal ball collides with drop targets. You can hear the chimes when a ball hits a pop bumper. Now, one thing people ask me a lot is how anyone can ever get good at pinball. For people that I've introduced to playing casually or that I've played with for the first time in competitions, a frequent complaint is that the games can move fast and everything just feels really random. Cool, well, for me at least, it has taken a lot of practice and also a lot of patience, especially with some of the newer games that have deep rule sets and complex objectives. Lately, I've been spending a lot of my time playing Godzilla. Which was released by Stern last year. I love that you can hear callouts that throw back to the franchise the game is based on. There is even the song Godzilla by Blue Oyster Cult. In the game, the player is Godzilla, and the goal is to fight back the invasion of Earth by the Zillions. 
And one of my favorite parts of that game is the motor-activated skyscraper in the center of the playfield. You can shoot balls into the center of it, locking the balls on the skyscraper's top floor. When three balls are locked, the skyscraper lowers, releasing the balls onto the playfield simultaneously for a multi-ball. There's also a silver Mecha Godzilla figure that looms over the lower part of the playfield, and that unlocks a different multi-ball. Now, the gameplay is what got me hooked. But the other thing that keeps bringing me back to pinball, of course, is playing with other people. Pinball has unlocked a ton of friendships with other players that I never would have discovered had I not flipped that first game and stuck with it for all these years. Juana, it is so considerate of you to pick up a hobby that makes for such good radio. <laughs> right? It's per- it's kind of perfect for this job. I should say this is part of an NPR series called I'm Really Into, which is a celebration of unique hobbies. It is at NPR.org. Okay, so beyond pinball, beyond politics, now that you're freed from the handcuffs of beat reporting and you can consider all the things... Tell us about some of the things you're especially looking forward to tackling as an All Things Considered host. There are so many things I'm looking forward to jumping into covering, and a big one of those is what we're seeing as a growing mental health crisis among young people in this country. And another topic that I know I have been thinking a lot about over recent weeks is the issue of gun violence. Which you've reported on before. That's right. I've spent a lot of time over the years covering activists and community organizers who are seeking ways to curb gun violence in their own communities, as well as politicians who are looking for ways to address that issue. And earlier this year, I shouted violence interrupters in Baltimore. Safe Street's leaders identified Albert Williams as a possible violence interrupter because of his reputation. I got involved because of a, a close friend, Dante Boxdale. He's saying the influence that I had on my little area. So he like really drove me and he, he passed away. So it's like, I gotta do it now. Another aspect of this job that I love is that we get to talk to authors, musicians, filmmakers, the people who reflect the world back to us through their art. And one of those interviews you did as a guest host on It's Been a Minute, which really stood out to me, was with Danielle Smith about her book Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. How did you start thinking about music in that way? It's it's just so nuanced and layered. Well, one, I appreciate that. Two, I just have always loved music I've always been nosy Um, so I guess it makes sense that I guess it makes sense that I would become you know a culture writer a music critic but it really started for me reading the liner notes of albums Uh, we used to have albums in the house my mother was very big with the Columbia club where you would like for a penny. But Juana, I got to warn you, you are never again going to be able to read books for fun because the reading (laughs) list you're going to have for this job is endless. (laughs) But this was a book that, while it was work, it was also a lot of fun. One of the things I love about the way that Danielle wrote about these stories of these women who are household names, but are also women I grew up in my mom's kitchen listening to, is the fact that she tells stories of these really intimate parts of their lives that many of us have never heard of before. And I have to say that's one of the things I'm hoping to do in this role is to help people amplify their own voices and to tell their own stories and to take our audience to perhaps some unexpected places, even about people they've probably grown up hearing of, just like I did with these musicians. Well, we are thrilled to have your voice and perspective on the show. So I want to leave you with a nugget of advice that was first given to me by your predecessor, Audie Cornish, on my first day as a host in 2015. This is uh, lovingly passed down (laughs) through the ages, generation to generation. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Don't skip lunch. (laughs) Oh, boy. I I don't think I'm going to be very good at that one, but I'm going to try my best. (laughs) Juana Summers, our newest All Things Considered host. Why don't you take us out with the line at the end of the segment? All right, here we go. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Learn more at nature.org. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Jesse Bird, a member of the NPR Foundation Board of Trustees, working to help provide the highest quality public service journalism to communities across the USA. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, a Russian court again extends the arrest of American WNBA star Brittany Griner, who has been held on drug charges since February. Her trial is due to begin on Friday. In the forecast, we'll see clouds and scattered showers early tonight before the clouds start to move out and lows right around 60 degrees. All sunshine tomorrow, highs around 80, and then Wednesday and Thursday, mostly sunny with highs both days in the mid-80s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An Amtrak train derails in Missouri after a collision with a dump truck with injuries and fatality numbers still unknown several hours later. It's Monday, June 27th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Jack Lepiars in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, what we know about the crash, which happened with about 250 people on board. Also this hour, how communities in northern Idaho were able to push out a neo-Nazi group that set up shop there decades ago. We were able to completely rid ourselves of that group and the kind of awful culture they were trying to present to our community. And the Supreme Court sides with a high school football coach who claimed the right to pray on the 50-yard line after each game. It's 5.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Supreme Court has voted 6-3 to three to side with a high school football coach from Washington State who led his team in prayer on the field after games. The case highlights the tensions involving public schools, religion, and free speech. The coach, Joe Kennedy, had been suspended from his job over the prayers. The justices said the coach's prayer was protected by the First Amendment. At Americans United for Separation of Church and State, CEO Rachel Lazar disagreed. Religious freedom is not the right to use your power as an agent of the state and a public school coach to impose your beliefs on students. Religious freedom is the shield that protects the rights of all students to believe as they choose until now. The coach said no student was ever coerced into praying with the team. The justices say the coach can get his job back. 
The Supreme Court 6-3 ruling Friday overturning Roe v. Wade abruptly ended abortion across much of the South, but not in the state of Georgia. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting talked to the owner of a Georgia health clinic seeing skyrocketing demand. Columbus Women's Health Organization is just across the Chattahoochee River from Alabama, where abortion access has largely ended. Clinic owner Diane Durzis says now... My phones are ringing off the hook. You know, I mean, women are, are afraid. The calls aren't just from Alabama. They're from Arkansas, Louisiana, Kentucky. Durzis owns The Clinic in Mississippi, wrapped up in the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe. She just has a few days left to perform abortions there. Women are going to be forced to travel, whether it's by airplane or bus or whatever it takes, depending upon their financial standing. That, Durzis says, makes safe abortions a luxury. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blinkenship in Macon, Georgia. A majority of Americans say they disagree with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn the landmark ruling that made abortion legal in the country nearly 50 years ago. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has more on the results of the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. 56% of respondents say they oppose the court's reversal of Roe and are concerned that other rights, like contraception and same-sex relationships, are next. The court's decision could have ramifications in the midterm elections as well, with an advantage for Democrats. Almost 8 in 10 Democrats say it makes them more likely to vote this fall, compared to just half of Republicans who say so. Still, despite the unpopularity of the court's abortion decision, a majority of respondents say they are against expanding the court to neutralize its conservative majority. A majority of Democrats are in favor of that, but Republicans and independents are not. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closed down 62 points today at 31,438. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. A bill limiting cooperation between local police departments and federal immigration authorities is moving forward on Beacon Hill. The Joint Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Securities approved the measure. If it becomes law, it would also restrict local and state law enforcement from asking about someone's immigration status. It's the second session in a row the bill's received committee backing. It previously stalled in the legislature before coming to a vote. Friday's Supreme Court ruling overturning the constitutional right to an abortion has many people wondering what is next. Jamie Sabino is the former president of the Women's Bar Association in Massachusetts. She says she thinks anti-abortion groups will try to further restrict abortion access in parts of the country with a focus on pills that induce abortions in the early stages of pregnancy. Can a state ban medical abortion or does the FDA rulings allowing it take precedent when the FDA has said you don't need to see a doctor We have approved this. Sabino says although abortion remains legal in Massachusetts, the state should continue to take steps to protect health providers. The ACLU of Massachusetts is suing the Boston Police Department in connection with the overdose death of a man in police custody in 2019. The suit says Shane Stilfen's death in 2019 could have been prevented if police had given him appropriate medical care instead of putting him in a jail cell. According to the complaint, video footage showed Stilfen exhibiting signs of opioid intoxication. The stepmother of a New Hampshire girl who disappeared two years ago is now facing additional charges, though unrelated to the girl's disappearance. 
31-year-old Kayla Montgomery has been indicted on firearms charges. She's accused of receiving stolen guns. She's also facing separate fraud and perjury charges. Harmony Montgomery was last seen in 2019 when she was five years old, but her disappearance was not reported for two years. No one has been charged in connection to the girl's disappearance. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy with showers early tonight with gradual clearing to follow, lows dropping to right around 60 degrees. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs right around 80 degrees, and then Wednesday and Thursday, mostly sunny and warmer, highs both days in the mid-80s. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rock Auto, an online auto parts store shipping parts directly to customers worldwide. Everything from complex sensors to new carpet. More at rockauto.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. There is just a week left in Pride Month, and this year has seen an unprecedented level of threats directed at LGBTQ people. This includes the recent arrest of white nationalists headed to an event in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef was there, but she says the events she witnessed that day are part of a larger story. Odette, remind us briefly what happened there. Yeah, we were there to cover a Pride event, Juana, that had been attracting some really violent reaction from the right online. By the afternoon, it was looking like everything actually had gone okay. Uh, But then we got word of these arrests happening nearby. So we raced over and saw a huge swarm of police and sheriff's deputies around a U-Haul truck. Turns out the Patriot Front members had been packed inside. So obviously, this was a a major story, but I think it was one that overshadowed a deeper story in North Idaho, Juana, about how that community has actually confronted far-right violence before and what it takes to do that. Tell us a little bit more about that history. Well, back in the 1970s, a man named Richard Butler bought 20 acres of farmland outside of Coeur d'Alene in a place called Hayden. Uh, He turned the property into a compound for neo-Nazis, and that organization was called Aryan Nations. It wasn't big. Uh, At any given time, there were maybe one to two dozen people living on it. But it was important. Um, The Aryan Nations compound came to be a hub for organizing the violent racist right. Uh, Every year, they'd gather Klansmen, uh, neo-Nazi skinheads, and others for conferences. It was also a problem for the locals, though. Um, In the 1980s, Aryan nations began began a crime spree and even tried assassinating prominent local figures. And here's the thing. You know, this continued, Juana, until Aryan nations was actually bankrupted in 2000. Bankrupted. How did that happen? Well, to answer that question, let's go for a car ride with a local lawyer named Norm Gissel. You saw the driveway there? There was a big wooden structure over the top of the driveway that says Aryan Nations, uh, whites only. The road that Gissel took me along was where a terrifying story began in July of 1998 for Victoria Keenan and her 18-year-old son. They were heading home one night after a wedding in Coeur d'Alene, and Keenan's son had dropped something out of the car. So they retraced their path along the road. So some of the neo-Nazis at the Aryan Nations compound heard the car backfire. They started giving chase, shooting as they followed the Keenan's vehicle. Up the road, Gissel showed me where the Keenan's rear tire blew out. And she skidded into this ditch right here. She was right here. And then the Nazis then surrounded her car, 
and the window was down. They started beating on her, hit her in the ribs with the rifle butt. Her son was sitting, as was cowered into the well of the passenger seat, and he was being beat on, and they were screaming. Gissel and other community members who'd been organizing against the Aryan Nations wrote to the Southern Poverty Law Center to share the Keenan's story. The SPLC took the case and ultimately won a $6.3 million judgment. This not only rid the community of the compound, but it showed that Richard Butler had badly miscalculated when he thought that North Idahoans would allow their community to become a hub for violent white extremists. We were able to completely rid ourselves of that group and the kind of awful culture that they were trying to present to our community. That's Coeur d'Alene's mayor, Jim Hammond, speaking two days after the Patriot Front arrests. But many people in that community disagree. They say extremism is once again making its home in North Idaho. I have heard people say it feels like when the Aryan nations were at its peak. It feels like that. That's the voice of Jessica Mahurin. She says in the last couple of years, Coeur d'Alene's seen a resurgence of far-right activity. Mahurin's the only paid full-time staff member of the North Idaho Pride Alliance, which organized the Pride in the Park event. For weeks leading up to the event, she, her board members, the event's vendors, and public officials were the target of what she calls an organized right-wing intimidation campaign. There were voicemails, emails, and even reportedly a death threat sent to a city official. Mahurin felt that this just made it more important to move forward with the event. We are here for many reasons, and none have to do with hate. So on a drizzly Saturday morning, Pride in the Park opened. That means you hear protesters, you see them, they're talking, they're making you upset, you disengage, you be louder. From the beginning, there was an acknowledgement of the threats. This is our pride. This is our day, and nobody is taking that away from us. Can I get an amen? amen. That's right. So, But this time, it was more than just protesters talking. A few minutes into the event, we see a figure pacing back and forth near the gathering. He's in full camo, sunglasses, a hat. A mask is pulled up to the bridge of his nose. On his back, he carries an automatic rifle. He doesn't share his name with NPR. I don't like this event. I'm protesting that. And I'm also here because I'm sure Antifa will be here. There was actually no sign of anti-fascist activists. The Pride event was mostly locals gathering to celebrate their identities. That makes no difference to this armed protester. There's so many places you can go and celebrate this. Why Idaho? Everyone is fleeing from states to try to have one conservative haven, and yet it ends up here. So where do we go from here? Do we go to Alaska? You know, there's not a lot of other places we can go. Are you a native Idahoan? I am not a native Idahoan. For decades, North Idaho and some neighboring states have occupied a special place in the imagination of the far right. They envision the region as a conservative haven. Native and longtime North Idahoans say it's a big place. They have a phrase, live and let live. But that's become harder. Because lately, the calls to arm have been so extreme. That bothers Christy Redfield. She's brought her kids to the Pride event. Earlier that morning, she saw a flyer for a pro-gun group gathering nearby. They were rallying under the false narrative that LGBTQ people harm children. One line on the flyer jumped out. It said, quote, If they want to have a war, let it begin here. 
She asks Michael Birdsong, the group's leader, what he meant by that. We want to bring war to us, you bet we will defend ourselves. I don't hear anybody else talking about war except for your no. marketing. All right, well, your marketing mentions war and your full two-way encouragement. You're going to have to wait your turn. Encouraging people. I know, I'm not going to. I have the right to free speech well, myself. Well, you do. And so I'll walk away, but I'm going to say one thing. In your marketing, you wage war. In your marketing, you're encouraging guns. That's violent. Redfield and Birdsong didn't end up arguing about their different views on LGBTQ people. They disagreed about whether it's safe and right for civilians to arm themselves when they disagree with their neighbors. That day in Coeur d'Alene showed just how volatile things could get when you mix false hyperpartisan narratives on social media, permissive state gun laws, and a sense of grievance among the far right as a Democrat occupies the White House. But Kate Bitts of the Western State Center says it would be a mistake to look at North Idaho as an outlier in America. We really see Idaho as kind of a bellwether state. Bitts's organization tracks anti-democratic movements and groups in the Northwest. She says Idaho was among the first to propose a ban on gender-affirming care for youth. It failed in 2020, but a similar ban has been introduced since then and may well pass, as it has now in other states. If we're trying to understand where the anti-democracy movement is headed, uh, Idaho is always useful to look at. But that's also true if we want to look at what the pro-democracy movement is doing. The pro-democracy movement. Locals say national media often miss this part of the story. When Aryan nations tried to make North Idaho its home, there was an unexpected side effect. Civic organizations began popping up throughout the panhandle and neighboring states. They focused on protecting and advancing civil and human rights. Christy Wood heads one of those groups, the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations. She says the recent influx of far-right residents from other parts of the country has made tensions worse. Among those migrants are avowed white nationalists. This time, they don't wear Nazi uniforms. And they have had some success forming relationships with certain elected leaders. But Wood still thinks these newcomers are finding out the same thing that Richard Butler and his Aryan nations found decades ago. What they find when they get here, though, are people like us. Our organization and all the citizens in Coeur d'Alene and Kootenai County that absolutely do not embrace that. And that's what some of these transplants will tell you, too. Like Ben, he only gave his first name. He was out protesting the Pride event and said he moved here three years ago as a conservative, quote, refugee. What was the North Idaho that you thought you were moving to? Is this what it looked like in your mind? No, not only is it not the, the Idaho I was expecting, it's not the country anyone was expecting. It's a country that's becoming more diverse, racially, ethnically, and one where people of different gender identities and orientations have, over time, been able to live more openly. That's NPR's Odette Youssef, who's still with us. So, Odette, it sounds like even if there had not been a U-Haul full of white nationalists on the day of that Pride event, there still would have been a big story unfolding in Coeur d'Alene. I think so, Juana. And it's worth noting that the Patriot Front arrests wouldn't have happened if a concerned community member hadn't seen those men loading into that U-Haul truck. Uh, and when that person called police about it, 
you know, the police had already had weeks of working closely with community members and organizations to be primed for this kind of a threat. You know, it's really kind of similar to how Victoria Keenan was the single person whose experience decades ago brought down Aryan nations. You know, if she hadn't been able to tap into a network of organizations that were primed to uphold the law and track these threats, uh, things might have been very different. All right. NPR's Odette Youssef, thanks so much. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the criticism towards Democrats, who some voters say haven't done enough to protect abortion rights. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In business news, a Worcester institution will soon be under new ownership. The Worcester Telegram and Gazette reports the Irish immigrants who founded and own O'Connor's Restaurant and Bar are selling it in a deal expected to close in the next couple of months. O'Connor's was first founded in 1989. On Wall Street today, stocks lost ground. The Dow was down 61 points at 31,439. NASDAQ fell 83 points to 11,524. And the S&P 500 dropped 11 points to end the day at 3,900. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital. Nine years in a row. BostonChildrens.org answers. Remember, it is your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser. Your $500 gift becomes $1,500 when you give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it'll be clouds and scattered showers early tonight before the clouds start to move out with lows overnight dropping to about 60 degrees. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The U.S. Supreme Court's conservative supermajority waded into yet another hot-button cultural issue today, ruling that a high school football coach has the right to pray on the 50-yard line after the game. The vote was 6-3. to three. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Coach Joseph Kennedy repeatedly defied orders from school authorities that he stop his post-game praying on the 50-yard line with students. He claimed those orders violated his right to the free exercise of religion and his free speech rights. School authorities in Bremerton, Washington, said his praying would be perceived as an unconstitutional endorsement of religion. 
But today, the Supreme Court formally jettisoned the so-called endorsement test used in the past and asserted that there was no evidence students were coerced to pray with a coach. Writing for the court majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch said that respect for religious expression is indispensable to life in a free and diverse republic, whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on the field. Here, he said, school authorities sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance protected by both the free exercise of religion and the free speech clauses of the First Amendment. University of Virginia law professor Douglas Laycock usually files briefs siding with religious advocates, but not in this case. He calls today's ruling, quote, fundamentally dishonest and points to the third sentence of the Gorsuch opinion, which characterizes Coach Kennedy's conduct as quiet, isolated prayers. They weren't quiet and they weren't isolated. They were meeting the students in prayer. And to say that's okay, you know, undermines all the school prayer cases. By that, he means Supreme Court decisions barring teacher and student-led prayers in public school classrooms and ceremonies like graduation. The dissenters, led by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, accused the court majority of misrepresenting the facts. They noted that the majority opinion focused on just three games and ignored all the others, including the homecoming game where Coach Kennedy, after a media blitz, prayed on the field accompanied by a state legislator and ending with a mainly pro-prayer crowd storming the field, knocking over band members and cheerleaders. Today's decision, wrote Sotomayor, elevates the rights of a school coach who voluntarily accepted public employment over the rights of students required to attend public schools who may feel obligated to join in prayer. In doing so, the court gives short shrift to the Constitution's ban on state entanglement with religion. In his opinion for the court, Justice Gorsuch put the nail in the coffin of a prior 1971 decision and said the test now should be the history, text, and traditions of the Constitution. But it is unclear how school boards are going to figure that out. The ACLU's David Cole points out that public schools didn't even exist at the time the First Amendment was adopted. The notion that somehow the, you know, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson would have thought it's fine for a school leader at a major public school event to pray is crazy. Professor Laycock notes that at the time of the founding, the country was 99% Protestant, and the early tradition of public schools was heavy-handed Protestant religious instruction and anti-Catholic textbooks, with Catholic kids beaten for refusing to read the King James Bible. I don't think they're going to permit that again, but that's what they just said. Villanova Law School's Michael Moreland concedes that the facts in this case could cut either way, but he still thinks the court got it right. And he says that some of the court's school prayer precedents, but not all, may now fall by the wayside. Among those on firmer ground now, he says, are... Historical practices that have gone on for a long time, and in a lot of parts of the country, that includes coaches saying prayers. Uh, And it might include things like moments of silence at graduations. That said, the country is far different from what it was at the founding, and the court is far different from what it was just five years ago. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Since last month's leak of the draft opinion overturning Roe, Democrats' main message to their voters has been that abortion is on the ballot in November. But many who support abortion rights have been voting. They say they're frustrated that electing Democrats hasn't produced more results. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reports. 
The rage among pro-abortion rights protesters in front of the Supreme Court this weekend was palpable. Plenty of that anger was aimed at the high court, but there was also quite a bit reserved for Democrats. I'm not hopeful at this point that this is something that will be federally protected. I have as little faith in Democrats at this point as I did in Republicans. Carolyn Yunker came to Saturday's protest from her home in suburban Maryland. Democrats have used this for 50 years to fundraise. They had opportunities to codify Roe. They chose not to because being the pro-choice candidate in an election helps you raise money. And frankly, I'm pretty disgusted with a lot of our representatives right now. In the fall, House Democrats did pass a bill that would have made Roe's protections federal law. But it failed in the Senate in May, where it would need 60 votes. Abortion rights supporters want the Senate to blow up the filibuster, but Democrats haven't unified behind that idea, and Biden hasn't pushed for it. He has also resisted calls to expand the court. Immediately after the ruling, Biden gave a statement, but the White House also canceled the daily press briefing, and the president left for a major summit in Europe. 34 senators this weekend urged Biden in a letter to lead a national response. A White House official emphasized that the administration will support medication abortion and cited dozens of discussions with abortion rights stakeholders. The White House also says policy action is coming this week. 19-year-old Priya Thompson, who came to the Supreme Court with her grandmother, said that as a new voter who supports abortion rights, she's feeling ambivalent about her vote. Honestly, it's like I'm just getting started and all of this is happening, so it's like it's hard to like make decisions and know who to vote for and who's really for us. With Roe overturned, Democratic candidates like Sarah Godlewski, running for Senate in Wisconsin, will be working to show voters that, no, seriously, they will prioritize protecting abortion rights if elected. This is one of the reasons why I stepped up to run for the U.S. Senate, you know, is that I was getting sick of reproductive freedom being treated like some sort of extra credit project. While this anger is prominent in the abortion rights movement, there's also an acknowledgement that some supporters grew complacent during the half century that Roe was in effect. Amy Allison is founder of She the People, which promotes women candidates of color. Even when we heard that the Supreme Court was planning to overturn Roe v. Wade, it didn't sink in for many people that this was actually a threat realized and it was going to have an effect on our lives. Allison said she's committed to electing Senate candidates who could help eliminate the filibuster. If we can elect these women of color, we'll have the votes in order to pass the legislation that went through the House and is sitting at the Senate to restore abortion rights and make reproductive justice a reality. In the short and medium term, some are focused on abortion access. Laura Kriv was among a small group protesting in front of Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house on Saturday night. Just like the Janes started this movement years ago and, and took it upon themselves to make sure women had safe access to abortion, we're going to have to do the same thing. And I'm not going to wait for Biden to do something. With activists motivated to do so much to protect abortion access right now, it's not clear how much they see voting this November as a solution. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on All Things Considered, the future of the anti-abortion movement now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Also, the Portland, Oregon 
company turning summer classics like fried chicken into flavors of ice cream. That's all coming up. Remember, stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be cloudy with showers early tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60 degrees. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting blues rock musician Joe Bonamassa, live at the Leader Bank Pavilion on Saturday, August 13th. Ticket info at Ticketmaster.com. Hi, it's Robin Young. We are in the home stretch of our June fundraiser with no interruption to your listening, by the way. And we're going the full distance. But we need your monthly gift by Thursday to meet our goal. We can do it. Or better, we have faith you can do it. When you give $10 or $12 a month or add maybe a dollar or two to your existing monthly support, give now. WBUR.org. And thank you. And a quick note on that. It is your last chance to get in on a triple match, meaning your money is tripled when you give now at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is expected to announce this week that the U.S. is buying a Norwegian advanced surface-to-air missile system to help Ukraine in its fight against Russia. As NPR's Tamara Keith tells us, the additional weapons are part of a larger assistance package. A source familiar with the security assistance package confirmed the purchase of the surface-to-air missile system as Ukrainian President Zelensky joined a meeting of G7 leaders via video link. Afterwards, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Biden told Zelensky more help is on the way. We are, in fact, in the process of finalizing a package that includes advanced air defense capabilities. I won't get into the details of the system. I'll wait till the contract actually gets done. Sullivan said the G7 leaders and Zelensky had a detailed conversation about strategy and the course of the war. He said Zelensky wants to push the pace of assistance and battlefield operations in hopes that the war doesn't drag out. Tamara Keith, NPR News, Elmau, Germany. Some high school students say the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion will play a role in their decision about where to go to college. From member station WSKG, Megan Zarez reports. Ella Reese and her friend Samantha Kager are going into the 11th grade. They live in upstate New York, and they say now abortion access has become a factor in where they'll go after high school. I think I'll stay in New York. Yeah, that's especially this is making me not want to go far away from here, especially if I can't like have free choice of what I want to do with my own body. New York's Governor Kathy Hochul says the state will remain a safe harbor for those seeking abortion. For NPR News, I'm Megan Zarez in Ithaca. After wavering between gains and losses, stocks finished mostly lower on Wall Street today. The Dow was down about two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Black drivers in Suffolk County are pulled over by police for minor traffic violations at more than twice the rate of white drivers. That's according to a new report by the nonprofit Vera Institute of Justice for the county. WBUR's Jack Mitchell has more. The analysis focused on small infractions, like expired license plates or tinted windows. Senior researcher Saliki Flingai says cities and states should consider barring police from making these kinds of routine stops. Many high-profile police shootings of black drivers are the consequence of these stops. It's really important that we think about the life and death importance of minimizing police contact through this kind of minor stop. 
The findings differ from a government study of all police stops statewide. That report found no evidence police in Massachusetts were more likely to pull over non-white drivers using a technique widely used to detect racial bias. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. State lawmakers have approved a temporary budget filed by Governor Charlie Baker last week. The measure is now back on the governor's desk awaiting his signature. The $6 billion plan would keep the state operating through July. With the new fiscal year starting Friday, lawmakers still need to hash out a new annual budget. Findings by the Federal Transit Administration that were critical of some safety issues on the MBTA have been helpful, according to the governor. Among the FTA concerns, understaffing and operations control center shifts that were too long, Baker says the ball is now in the T's court. All the positions that currently aren't filled at the T are funded. They're funded positions. The T's biggest problem at this point is getting people into those roles and those responsibilities and making it happen. Baker says lost revenue due to low ridership during the pandemic is also a concern. He says legislation will be filed by the end of the year to address that issue. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 1776 at the ART. See the revival of the Tony-winning musical that WBUR called Electrifying, now through July 24th, amrep.org. And Boston Harbor Now, celebrating the Boston Harbor Islands state and national park anniversaries. Visit bostonharborislands.org for programming and ferry information. In sports, Red Sox start a three-game set with the Blue Jays up in Toronto tonight. In the forecast, we'll see clouds and scattered showers early tonight before the clouds move out with lows around 60. All sunshine tomorrow, highs right around 80 degrees. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Abortion opponents have waited decades for the moment that arrived on Friday when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now their fight enters a new phase. Next up, a push for a national end to abortion. Kristen Hawkins is president of Students for Life of America, one of the country's biggest anti-abortion groups. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me, Ari. How do you see the next phase of this fight unfolding? Sure. Well, you know, we've been preparing for this moment, as you mentioned, for decades of preparing young people, um, getting involved, building relationships with legislatures across the countries. And so I see it very much as a twofold fight that we have, you know, not only at the state legislative fronts, but also on the streets and in the communities. That's happening at the state level. Is there also a federal effort in Congress to prepare Republicans if they take over the House and Senate to introduce legislation that would create a federal ban on abortion? Yeah, well, I was actually up at the Senate today meeting with some staff before I headed out of D.C. And yes, those conversations are happening. You know, we were pushing for our U.S. senators to act um, and to speak up against the violence of abortion. You say our senators. Who's leading the effort on this? 
We've met with several senators. Um, obviously, uh, they were Republican senators, um, but we, you know, more than welcome Democrats to join in this human rights movement. You don't want to name names right now, I take it? Uh, no, I don't want to name names right now, but uh, thank you for, for that and that push. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you have been working towards this for so long, I'm curious how far along the process is. Like, is there already draft language for a bill that could be introduced in Congress if the GOP took control sure. tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, there's already bills that have been introduced. For example, Representative Alex Mooney from West Virginia introduced the Life at Conception Act this February. Just earlier last week, we were working with Representative Bob Good out of Virginia to get a discharge petition on that bill. Um, we've seen a heartbeat bill, the ban abortions when uh, heartbeats can be detected already introduced in the House. You're pointing to the fact that different laws have different standards, whether abortion is banned at six weeks or 15 weeks, whether they have exceptions for rape or incest or the life or the health of the mother. Is there consensus among the groups that you're working with? Yes, the pro-life movement is very much united because banning abortions, restricting abortions at the moment a heartbeat can be detected is a consensus issue. I just saw a trifolder uh, pulled out just last week. It was in the New York Post, I believe, this morning, saying you know more than 50% of Americans think that abortion should be restricted when a heartbeat is present. One criticism of the state laws that have already passed is that they were not written by medical experts and in some cases are vague. Our colleague Layla Faudel is in Kentucky, where she spoke to an OBGYN named Dr. Louis Monig. He described treating ectopic pregnancies, a potentially life-threatening situation that will never result in a live birth. Here's what he said. Many of us are put in this hard position of having to choose between doing what we think is right and necessary and having to worry about possible criminal consequences and it may be that there is that exception for life-saving measures, but that may not stop us from getting accused, charged of something, and having to go through the whole process of dealing with that. Are you scared? I am scared, and I think a lot of us are, because there's nowhere else in medicine that is policed and regulated and now criminalized to such a degree. Kristen Hawkins, what would you say to a doctor in his situation? Well, I'd say it's very clear when a life-threatening atomic pregnancy is occurring, there's an ultrasound that's performed and it's clear uh, and the intention is to save the life of the mother. We know that child is not viable. That child cannot survive outside of the fallopian tube. Every single pro-life law in America that is introduced, debated, passed, always includes an exception to save the life of the mother. Um, and so I would say that's a very tragic situation that we do know occurs. Uh, no one in the pro-life movement wants to see women die. This is, you know, why we are pro-life. And I think uh, he's exploiting uh, that very sad situation to try to make a case for abortion in all nine months, uh, which is what we're hearing over and over again from those who are pro-choice. As you push Republicans in Congress to pass a nationwide ban on abortion, would you also like to see them advanced programs designed to help families and children, like the child tax credit, which lifted so many children out of poverty and ended when Congress failed to renew it. We've been very clear in the pro-life movements that, you know, it's not about just making abortion unavailable. It's also about making abortion unthinkable. That is why, you know, we have an initiative at Students for Life called Standing With You that lists public and private resources and support. That's why- but In the terms of federal programs that actually lift children out of poverty, I mean, there are many things that Congress could pass, whether that's Absolutely, universal child care. And those are things Republicans on the whole have not pushed for. Yeah, I mean, we- 
I think there are substantive policy debates that we can have about the different policies and what policies we believe. Um, and we know using statistics would be the best to advance um, and end child poverty and child hunger to support women and families who are, you know, unexpectedly pregnant and now, you know, have a family to feed and clothe and house. Um, and we would love to have those discussions. I love to have these discussions about specific policies. I love to get into the facts. I, I worked in the government. I certainly have a lot of opinions about healthcare, having two children with advanced uh, genetic life-threatening diseases myself. But I would say we need to start with a discussion that if we say every human life is valuable, then we need to protect human life in the womb. And that's what we're saying in the pro-life movement. Kristen Hawkins is president of Students for Life of America. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A Russian court has again extended the detention of U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner. She'll be held for the duration of an upcoming trial on drug charges. NPR's Charles Maines was at the courthouse today, and he has our story. A handcuffed Brittany Griner appeared briefly before the press as she was led by guards and even a guard dog to the closed preliminary hearing that extended her detention. In fact, afterward, Griner's lawyer, Alexander Boykov, said that's all today's legal proceedings touched on. It was a technical hearing, the first hearing, the preliminary hearing. Uh, it was the prolongation of the arrest, not more than that. Griner's actual trial on drug charges gets underway this Friday, July 1st. That's more than four months after she was detained at a Moscow airport upon arriving to play off-season in a Russian basketball league. Russian officials allege the two-time Olympic gold medalist and WNBA star was carrying vape cartridges containing cannabis oil, a potential drug smuggling violation for which she faces up to 10 years in prison. Yet Griner's case has also unfolded against the backdrop of cratering U.S.-Russian relations over the Kremlin's military campaign in neighboring Ukraine. The U.S. government declared Griner wrongfully detained in May and has assigned her case to its envoy for hostage affairs amid growing public pressure to gain her release. In a recent appearance on CNN's State of the Union with journalist Jake Tapper, Secretary of State Antony Blinken suggested the White House did not rule out a potential prisoner swap for Griner and another jailed American, Paul Whelan, much like a trade that freed former Marine Trevor Reed from a Russian jail earlier this year. As a general proposition, Jake, I've got no higher priority than making sure that Americans who are being illegally detained in one way or another around the world come home. And that includes Paul Whelan, that includes Brittany Griner, that includes people in a number of other countries. American officials, however, were not present at the courthouse today. An embassy spokeswoman later explained the absence, telling NPR U.S. officials had been told they would not be allowed to attend the day's closed proceedings, but would be there for the duration of Griner's trial. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's summertime, which might inspire cravings for classic picnic fare like deviled eggs and fried chicken. One company in Portland, Oregon, has reinvented these standbys and turned them into ice cream flavors. Reporter Katie Riddle tried them out. It's been more than a decade since Tyler Malik bought an ice cream maker at Goodwill to experiment with. Today, he and his cousin own 27 ice cream stores. Their company is Salt and Straw. Malik says they've never stopped experimenting. We made bug ice cream for Halloween. The bug ice cream was born of a collaboration with an insect farmer from central Mexico. Unusual flavors, says Malik, get people questioning their assumptions about food. It makes people, like, puts them on edge, but it's actually a really cool way to provoke conversation. The team has also made pig blood and cow bone marrow flavors. 
there's the set of consumers who are looking for ice cream as something that's an adventure. Jennifer Mapes Christ studies food trends for an industry group called Packaged Facts. She says people are looking to the ice cream cone for a novel experience, something they've never tried or a place they've never been. Especially young consumers who are looking for those exciting and different global flavors. She says these flavors mostly turn up in artisanal or specialty shops. But it's not unusual for niche trends to make their way into the mainstream. Maybe bug ice cream will be next to the mint chocolate chip at grocery stores soon. So it's a pink rosé and watermelon sorbet. Standing in one of their shops, Malik reads the summer tasting menu posted on the wall. It's based on the idea of a picnic. The middle flavor, it's a deviled egg custard with smoked black tea. Though it gives us almost like that bacony element. It includes marshmallow fluff with balsamic vinegar. Why, Even why our, on our teams, there's like a camp that absolutely loves it, and there's a camp that absolutely hates it. So Is you this... have to taste the sample. Okay, yeah, here yeah. we go. I wouldn't say I hate it. That's but good. I wouldn't say I love it. That's fair. And this is where the fried chicken makes an appearance. The star flavor of the summer menu is cinnamon honey fried chicken. I actually think this is one of the coolest flavors we've ever created, so I'm excited for you to taste is it. it? <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. That's good. A ton of umami from that chicken fat and the, like a little bit of texture from the, the croissant. I do taste the chicken, but it's so right. sweet. And, yeah. and there's, I taste yeah. the honey and the um, cinnamon, and yeah, it's, it's all in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, get that with a little bit of a, a spritz of perfume on top. A spritz of perfume on top. You heard that correctly. This is their latest invention, edible perfume. Soon customers will be able to select these scents as toppings or buy them to wear. Don't worry, the scents are like citrus or flowers, not fried chicken. I took some of the picnic ice cream flavors home for some more research. Smells good. What's that? This is my son, Thomas. He's nine. This ice cream has chicken in it. I hate it. We haven't even tried it yet. I, I still it. hate it. And yet, after he tasted it... Six out of ten. Six out of ten. My four-year-old, Phoebe, gets the final verdict. Not a taste. Dip your spoon in. I like it. From the mouths of babes, Phoebe's not alone. Overall bestsellers are still salted caramel and cookie dough. But Malik says the fried chicken flavor sells better at their Disneyland location than at any of their other stores. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. Hey, remember, your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser is coming up. But when you give right now, your $10 a month gift becomes $30 a month for the first year of your giving. So please give now at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear about abortion providers in Canada, already stretched thin, who are now expecting increased demand for services from Americans crossing the border. That's coming up. Forecast says cloudy with showers early tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs right around 80 
degrees. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 549. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. And New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Enjoy live music, a beer garden, fun games, and sunset views on Thursday summer evenings. NEBG.org. WBUR is out on a limb, and you're running out of time to join us. I'm Rupa Shinoy. We've eliminated a five-day on-air fundraiser this month, so you could and can hear WBUR uninterrupted. But we need to meet our goal by Thursday. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org or add a dollar or two to your ongoing monthly support. Just go to WBUR.org. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. After last week's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade in the U.S., abortion providers in Canada are watching the ramifications on both sides of the border. Americans seeking abortion services in Canada could face wait lists, and Canadians looking for care in the U.S. could lose access, too. Emma Jacobs reports. Kemlin Nemard says there's no way to plan for a post-Roe world. She's the head of the Women's Health Clinic in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I don't know. She doesn't know how many Americans might look for services in Winnipeg, a little over an hour's drive from the U.S. border. Are people going to be coming north or are they going to go to another state? We don't know that. The clinic already sees some patients from neighboring North Dakota. The state has a trigger ban, ready to take effect once the Supreme Court overturned Roe. Its Canadian clients come from across a huge area, some driving up to 10 hours or flying in from remote northern communities. Canadian researchers and abortion advocates say they expect most Americans from states with abortion bans to travel to nearby states that allow them. But Nemard says even relatively small numbers coming to Canada could strain capacity in some areas. Every year we actually provide about a quarter to a third more abortions than we get funded for. So realistically, if the population of North Dakota, people that wanted to access abortions, or even if there were a whole bunch of northern states, right, that came to us, there's no way we could meet that need. The executive director of Canada's National Abortion Federation, Jill Doktoroff, says patient support groups in the U.S. are already inquiring about options for Americans to come to Canada. I know that there's many groups, including governments, that want to help and and support Americans' access. At the same time, she says, Canada already struggles to deliver abortion services to rural residents and later in pregnancy, after 24 weeks, when serious health problems can show up. Federal Cabinet Minister Karina Gould told the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that Americans could seek abortions in Canada, but that Canadians also need services. One of the concerning factors here is that there are many Canadian women who maybe don't live near a major city in Canada that will often access uh, these services in the United States. The organization Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights runs a hotline which helps people seeking abortion referrals. Frédéric Chabot says they sometimes support travel to U.S. clinics, mostly in Colorado, where abortion is expected to remain legal. But there's going to be so much more pressure on those points of services from neighboring states and people needing to travel internally in the United States, which may mean that care is delayed by weeks. 
Chabot is also concerned about the political impacts the decision could have in Canada. In terms of what is considered possible for anti-choice activism. Days after the draft decision leaked, Jack Fonseca of the Campaign Life Coalition spoke outside Canada's Supreme Court. He called on anti-abortion activists to support politicians and Supreme Court justices who would ban abortion in Canada. We have a lot of work ahead of us, but the overturning of Roe versus Wade will help us towards that goal because it will enable Canadians uh, to have kitchen table conversations. Associate law professor Carrie Frock at the University of New Brunswick considers the legal rights to abortion fairly secure in Canada for now. For us, the devil is more in the details and making sure that women practically have access. Someday, she says, she could see new clinics opening close to the American border, which could serve Americans and expand access for Canadians. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal. It can be tough to reconstruct a life in detail after 13,000 years, so allow us to present you something extraordinary, the story of Fred. Fred was born somewhere in the Midwestern United States and likely spent much of his early life at home. When it was finally time to forge a path of his own, he said goodbye to his family and set off into the wild. For the rest of his life, Fred roamed the plains of what is now Indiana. Every summer, he'd compete against other males for a mate. These competitions were violent, physical battles. And one summer, one of these fights brought Fred to an untimely end. Dead at 34 years old, Fred's body sank into the swampy earth. These days, Fred's skeleton is preserved in the Indiana State Museum. It's nine feet tall and 25 feet long. His head alone weighs over 300 pounds. Fred was a mastodon, also known as the bushing mastodon, named after the family farm where his remains were found. He is a distant relative of the modern elephant. So the bushing mastodon was preserved in a swampy area, um, and those kind of environments are really conducive to excellent preservation. That's Josh Miller, a paleoecologist at the University of Cincinnati. He recently co-authored a paper studying much of Fred's life. The study is unique because it's a really detailed look into the life of an individual animal who lived such a long time ago. You see, mastodon's tusks grow throughout their lives in distinct layers, kind of like the rings on a tree trunk. And since Fred's tusks were so well-preserved... You get a daily record uh, of its behavior, of its landscape use, um, and the season in which that, that tusk increment was grown. Basically, the nutrients that build the layers of Fred's tusks can tell us where he was at different points in his life. The team specifically looked at variation in the elements oxygen and strontium. So every element uh, comes in different isotopes, kind of uh, different flavors, if you will, of an isotope that are slightly, that weigh slightly more, slightly less. Different isotope blends are unique to certain areas and seasons, and they're reflected in the local plants and water. So as Fred roamed the plains, the food he ate and the water he drank imprinted those unique isotope blends into his tusks. You can think of it kind of like a dated passport stamp. Each layer of Fred's tusk reflects where and when that piece grew. And when he was young, Fred would have stuck close to home with his herd and grown a lot. 
but there will be a year um, that the growth is really reduced. They just don't grow much that year. That's the year Miller's analysis starts, and it is the first year Fred was fending for himself after getting kicked out of his herd. And they're essentially just really obnoxious, uh, and they're just getting in everyone's hair. They're kind of getting in the way. They're, um, uh, they're just not particularly helpful members of the herd. Um, and at that point, the mom, the ants, will essentially boot that individual um, from that maternal herd. Then as an adult male, Fred would visit the same area in northeastern Indiana every summer, presumably to find a mate. And around this time in his life, Fred's tusks start to show some damage when rival male mastodons are competing for females. They get in these huge battles where one or even both combatants may die. Their tusks are their primary weapons. And one summer, an opponent stabbed his tusk through Fred's skull and killed him. Although he died over 13,000 years ago, Fred's legacy lives on in his tusks. You can visit him and pay your respects at the Indiana State Museum. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. At DuckDuckGo.com. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up next hour on All Things Considered, the government settles a case to grant billions in debt relief to students, many of them veterans who say unscrupulous colleges cheated them. We'll get that story and more coming up next hour here on WBUR. Forecast says clouds and scattered showers early tonight before the clouds move out with lows right around 60 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, highs right around 80. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 559. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This court is supposed to stand for affirming or expanding rights, not taking them away. Worries that after overturning Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court could take aim at same-sex marriage. It is Monday, June 27th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Jack Lepiars in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, critics zero in on comments from Justice Clarence Thomas, where he appeared to call for the overturning of rulings related to same-sex marriage, sodomy, and even birth control. Also, how inflation has become a global problem. 
If you line up the 30 richest countries in the world and look at what has happened to inflation there over the past 15 months, we're actually totally in the range of normal. And at 6.30 on Marketplace, the state of Russia's besieged economy. It's 6.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The U.S. Supreme Court, wading into another cultural flashpoint, ruled today that a high school football coach has the right to pray on the 50-yard line after the game, surrounded by players who join in. The vote was 6-3, to three, again along ideological lines. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. Coach Joseph Kennedy repeatedly defied orders from school authorities that he stop his post-game praying with students on the 50-yard line. School authorities in Bremerton, Washington, said his praying would be perceived as an unconstitutional endorsement of religion. But today, the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority said that Kennedy's prayers were quiet, isolated, and permissible under the Constitution's text and traditions. The dissenters replied that the majority opinion had simply misrepresented the facts, focusing on just three games and ignoring the others, which included mayhem on the field over the prayer issue. The result, they said, was to give short shrift to the Constitution's mandate for separation of church and state. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Four years ago, Tony Evers won Wisconsin's governorship by just over one percentage point. This year, the Democrat is running for re-election with what he believes could be a winning issue for him, access to abortion. The state of Wisconsin currently has a 173-year-old law on the books banning abortion. Evers believes that in this year's statewide elections, independent voters will lean Democratic based on this issue. We're going to fight and fight and fight to make sure that the women in the state of Wisconsin have the same rights they had three days ago going forward. This, this, this is not over yet. We're going to continue to fight. It's expected to be one of the closest governor's races in the nation. Two Russian missiles hit a crowded shopping center in the central Ukrainian city of Kremenchuk today. Witnesses say the attack triggered a major fire and an eruption of black smoke. Local authorities say at least 13 people were killed, dozens were injured. NATO has announced plans to increase its rapid response force from 40,000 to 300,000 troops. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the increase in forces will be the biggest overhaul of the organization since the end of the Cold War. Up to now, the NATO response force was made up of 40,000 troops. Now, the number is to increase massively to 300,000, with some of them being reassigned to regions bordering Russia, like the Baltic states, in the event of a Russian attack. In peacetime, these troops are generally under national command, but are meant to be deployed quickly in an emergency. Leaders of NATO's 30 member states will discuss these changes in their summit in Madrid. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 lost 11 points, closing at 3,900. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education is expected to vote tomorrow on whether to designate Boston public schools as underperforming. Education Commissioner Jeff Riley is recommending the designation instead of receivership by the state. A recent state report found the district falls short of acceptable minimum standards in several areas, including transportation and special education. The city and state have been unable to reach agreement on the oversight of school improvement plans. 
While expressing disappointment in last week's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Governor Charlie Baker is indicating Massachusetts will try and use the ruling to attract businesses to the Bay State. More now from WBUR Steve Brown. The governor says his executive order will keep abortion providers here in Massachusetts safe from prosecution elsewhere. He says it will also protect and provide relief for people from other states who come here seeking abortions. Baker's also hoping his actions might have a positive economic impact on the state. There may in fact be a big opportunity here for Massachusetts to encourage some employers to either come here or expand their footprint here because we are a state that takes this issue seriously and will be there for their employees when they need those kinds of reproductive services and supports. The governor says he's confident an increase in funding for clinic security will pass the legislature and be signed into law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A new poll finds a majority of Massachusetts residents have growing economic concerns. Almost two-thirds of respondents in a UMass WCBB poll say they would describe their personal economic situation as either fair or poor. Top concerns among the 1,000 residents polled include rising inflation, an unstable economy, and a tight and more expensive housing market. A heads up, if you plan on driving along Soro Drive in Boston later tonight, there will be intermittent lane closures in both directions between the BU and Longfellow bridges. Those closures will be in effect from 8 p.m. until 4 a.m. for streetlight work along the roadway. An institution in Worcester is changing hands. After more than three decades, Brendan and Claire O'Connor are selling O'Connor's restaurant and bar on West Boylston Street. Brendan O'Connor says it was a dream realized to come to America from Ireland and build a business, but that it is now time to retire. He says he'll miss the patrons the most. We have, you know, the engineers, the fire chiefs meet, the Commonwealth of Mass fire chiefs meet there, the police officers meet there, Mensa meet there, Stutter Club meet here. You know, it's unbelievable. Uh, All of life's happenings seem to gather in O'Connor's at one time or another. The new owners plan to keep the restaurant's name and its employees. O'Connor says he's looking forward to becoming a patron instead of the owner. In the forecast, clouds with showers early tonight, then gradual clearing, lows around 60. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds that most Americans oppose the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been digging into the numbers, and he's here in the studio with us. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Ari. Uh, tell us about what the survey shows. Well, 56% said that they opposed the court's ruling. That includes about 9 in 10 Democrats, a majority of independents, and 1 in 5 Republicans. Now, we didn't see much of a gender gap here. Both women and men were opposed to the ruling, but the biggest divide was by education. There was a 40-point gap between college graduates who opposed the ruling and those without degrees who are split. Uh, majorities are also concerned that the court will now reconsider rulings that protect other rights, like contraception and 
same-sex relationships. Suburban women in particular said they were concerned about this. That's a warning sign for Republicans because it's a group they've really been targeting in this election on issues related to COVID and education. You mentioned the election. How might this impact voter turnout? Well, a strong majority said that they are now more likely to vote, but it's far and away Democrats who are the most fired up. Almost 8 in 10 Democrats said they're more likely to vote now compared to only about half of Republicans. That's a big deal because with inflation and gas prices, Republicans have been so heavily favored to take back the House. Uh, Here's Lee Miringoff, director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, uh, which conducted the poll on why this matters. I would not in any way underestimate the magnitude of what this decision is from the court because it's going to play out not only at the national level, but in terms of state representatives suddenly now become more important because the state rules might play a role in what the future policies are. So there's a potential for this ruling to upend things up and down the ballot. We just don't know how that's going to play out. It's why you see so many Republicans being cautious about how to react. They really don't want this front and center. If the court seems so out of step with where voters are, does the poll say anything about the idea of court packing, adding justices to neutralize the court's conservative supermajority? Well, it is something that obviously progressives have been pushing with Democratic leadership, but a majority of respondents are not in favor of taking that step. Just a third say they want to see that happen. And there's a real gap between Democrats and everyone else here. 62% of Democrats are on board with that, but only 20, 29% of independents are. If progressives and Democrats really are going to stem the tide of this conservative cultural shift that's underway, it's going to likely have to take place at the ballot box. I have to say, though, it's a really odd situation to have one side, Democrats continuously winning the popular vote in presidential elections, for example, in increasingly large numbers, and to have public opinion largely on their side on major cultural issues like abortion and gun safety regulation. And yet they're susceptible to losing presidential elections because of the Electoral College. And we're seeing the Supreme Court pushing the country culturally in an opposite direction. It really is stretching the fabric of the country and casting doubt on on trust in a lot of the systems. And so do you expect that these midterms are going to be much more volatile? uh, Is it going to be fought over abortion on the Supreme Court? I think undoubtedly we're going to have to wait and see, watch what's going to happen here, because it is introducing a ton of volatility. We're seeing lots of activism taking place. And that can only mean that, uh, you know, Republicans are on their back heels a little bit when it comes to this issue, because Republicans I've talked to have said they really just don't want this to be a thing that they have to message against because they're not sure how to handle it. NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. Now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, many people are concerned about what other established rights could disappear next. Now, Justice Samuel Alito emphasized in the majority opinion that this decision was about abortion specifically. But in a concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that the legal rationale for last week's decision could be applied to reconsider other landmark cases, those that establish rights to same-sex consensual sex, contraception, and gay marriage. Jim Obergefell knows this fight well. He was the plaintiff in the 2015 case Obergefell versus Hodges, which established a right to same-sex marriage across the United States. Jim Obergefell, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's great to be back on. I wish it were under better circumstances. Now, the last time we spoke with you, you told us your thoughts on what was then a leaked draft opinion. Now, the court has overturned Roe. What was your reaction when the decision was handed down? Well, you know, my immediate reaction was what a dark day for rights in America to have the highest court in the land for the first time ever take back a right that it had previously affirmed. And to know that women in our nation can now no longer control decisions about their own body because of government overreach, 
government intrusion. And then to read that concurring opinion by Clarence Thomas just made me even more concerned about the future of civil rights in our nation and especially for the LGBTQ plus community, given the, the cases that he mentioned, in addition to the continued attacks on women's rights. All right, let's talk about that a little bit. The majority opinion written by Justice Alito, it doesn't stray far from the leaked draft, and it included language that this decision specifically deals with abortion. It doesn't carry on to other rights. And when you were on the show earlier in June, you said that you did not take comfort in that assurance. I, I want to ask you, do you still feel that way? Absolutely. Why should we take any comfort in those words in that decision when many of these justices who have now decided to strike down a woman's right to control her own body, during their confirmation hearings, they were either not fully truthful or they lied under oath saying that they considered Roe versus Wade, the right to an abortion, precedent. I won't believe anything that comes out from this court, at least the extreme majority on this court, for that very reason. There's no reason to believe them. They have proven they, they cannot be trusted. Hmm. Now, public opinion is firmly in support of same-sex marriage, and support for same-sex marriage is higher today than it was in 2015 when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. Does that fact give you any sort of reassurance that there is not an appetite, publicly at least, for overturning this issue? I wish I could say it did. However, public opinion is on the side of women having the right to an abortion, women having the right to control the decisions made about their body. And yet that certainly did not sway this court. This court is determined to take our nation backward. And now that one right has been lost, other rights are at risk. And this court will continue to drag us down an extreme right-wing path that will take our nation backwards. And that is wrong. This court is supposed to stand for equal justice under law. This court is supposed to stand for affirming or expanding rights not taking them away. So there has been a lot of conversation recently and a lot more since Dobbs was handed down that rights that are protected by the 14th Amendment should be codified by Congress. And I want to ask you, is that something that you and other LGBTQ advocates are preparing to push for? Without a doubt, Wano, Congress must act. If Congress can't step up and say, these are the rights we believe in, these are the the fundamental rights, the human rights, the civil rights that deserve protection, if not from the Supreme Court under law, then what is worth fighting for? So yes, we will absolutely be pushing for Congress to come out in support and to propose legislation that will protect these rights. And if we can't get that at the federal level, well, that's also something we need to be working hard to do at the state level. I want to ask you quickly about the chance for reforms passing at the federal level in Congress, where we know that Democrats have slim majorities. They have been unable to pass a number of major legislative priorities. Do you feel confident that you might be able to see some of these protections codified at the federal level? I want to feel confident. However, given some of the votes that have happened in Congress and knowing that we have been unable to get all Democrats, all members of that caucus to vote in support of things that the American people support, I sincerely do worry. I can only hope that there are Republicans who do believe in equal justice under law, who do believe in welcoming everyone in this nation as part of We the People, who would step up and do the right thing 
and support that type of proposal. You have been an advocate for some time now. I wonder, what do you say to young people, perhaps even young queer people who are in this moment feeling discouraged, hopeless, concerned, what other rights might be eliminated right now? I will say this. You have every right to feel discouraged, to feel afraid, because honestly, I do as well. But I also reconnected with a friend. Her name is Sarah. She reached out to say, Jim, my son David started to cry in the car this morning. Back when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court, he was worried about the future. Would he lose the right to marry? And she asked what I would say to him, how I could give him hope. And I say this to David, his mom, Sarah, and every other young person out there. It's okay to be afraid, but just know that I am out there fighting for the things that are right, the things that are just, the things that matter. And I am far from alone. There are so many people and organizations out there doing the same thing. But we also need your help. Use your voice. Contact your elected officials. Do everything you can to make sure your voice is heard. And most importantly, vote. Because the only way our government and our judiciary will reflect us as a nation is if we all vote and we elect the people who share our values. We elect the people who believe in equal justice under law and we the people for everyone, not just the few. So vote in every single election as soon as you are able. But just know there are so many people out there who are fighting this important fight and we will not stop because we owe it to the future generations to do everything we can to make it a better world for them. That's Jim Obergefell. He was the plaintiff in the landmark case Obergefell versus Hodges that established a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Anna. Glad to be on. The expansion of NATO was a driving factor in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the alliance is holding its biggest summit in years. Front and center, how to end a war that has hurt economies around the world, while also admitting new members to NATO. We'll preview the summit in Madrid tomorrow on Morning Edition. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, how inflation's affected not just the U.S., but much of the world over the last year plus. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA, with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant, figurative paintings. ICABoston.org. In business news, a French drug maker with its U.S. headquarters in Cambridge is buying a Massachusetts-based cancer treatment firm. The deal will see Ipsen SA acquire Epizyme for about $247 million. Epizyme's had its share of recent struggles, missing revenue targets and laying off about 12% of its workforce in March. On Wall Street, stocks lost ground. Dow was down 61 points at 31,439. NASDAQ fell 83 points and the S&P 500 dropped 11 points. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 6.30. Right now, it's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Boston Children's Hospital. Thanking the community for helping make them the nation's number one children's hospital. Nine years in a row. 
bostonchildrens.org answers. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. In the forecast, we'll see early clouds and showers tonight before clearing skies later on. Lows to right around 60 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, highs right around 80. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston at 620. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Right now, we are all paying quite a bit more for pretty much everything. And yeah, when gas or food or housing gets too expensive, people get angry, right? And they want to know who or what exactly is to blame for this inflation. Well, that depends on who you ask. Labor shortage, that's been driving up wages, 48%. Demand for goods and services that outpaces supply. It's the Democrats. It's AOC. It's Bernie Sanders. You know, it, it, it's, it's the Democrat Congress. Supply chain problems is the number one source of inflation. It's Joe Biden's policies that are creating these dramatically higher prices. Now we're going to make sure that everybody knows Exxon's prophecy. Exxon made more money than God this year. All right, let's fact check these claims about inflation with Josh Bivens, Director of Research with the Economic Policy Institute. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, can we start with the president right there, what we just heard him say about oil companies? I mean, basically what Biden is saying is that these oil companies and other businesses are jacking up prices more than they need to to make up for higher expenses due to, say, like supply shortages. Is there data to back up that claim? Yeah. I mean, especially for kind of the first year of the inflationary shock, basically from like very early 2021 to the end of 2021, if you track profit margins, those profit margins got much fatter and they actually reached historically high levels um, by the end of 2021. So definitely the rise of profits definitely is a big part of why prices jumped in 2021, especially. Is it connected to inflation or it's partly causing inflation, these increasing profit margins? I think it's fair to say they're a cause. I mean, if it was just the case that they were passing on any cost in their own production to customers, you would say that's not really their fault. They're just taking the costs and passing them on. They're not just passing them on. They're also increasing their profit margin. So they're mm-hmm. taking whatever increase in costs they're experiencing. They're adding to it. And it turns out they're adding enough. The profit margins were getting so much fatter. The profits were contributing a really historically high share to the growth in prices in 2021. Interesting. Okay, well, another claim is that wage increases are also helping drive inflation. The theory being employers are paying employees more, partly because of more labor organizing. And as a result of that, businesses have to raise prices. How feasible is that theory? In my mind, mostly not feasible. So it's true that like if wages had just not grown at all Mm -hmm. over the past 15 months, inflation would be a bit lower today. But it turns out wage growth has always been lagging far behind overall inflation. So it means, on the one hand, workers' real wages, their inflation-adjusted wages, they're actually going down. And also, every time wage growth comes in beneath overall inflation, it's actually serving as an anchor on inflation. It's actually trying to drag it back down to a more normal level. And over the entire course of the past 15 months, wage growth has been coming in slower than overall inflation. It's one of the things in the economy that is seeing less growth than everything else that is connected to overall prices. Hmm. 
Well, there's also blame directed at the federal government and, and all the federal spending on pandemic relief, like stimulus checks, small business loans, uh, child tax credits, pauses in student loan payments, etc. The argument is, I understand, like if there's more money out there to be spent, there's more demand and prices will rise. Is there truth in that? Inflation is global. There's been an acceleration yeah. of core inflation across every advanced economy, even the ones that did very, very little fiscal relief. Um, and so I think the evidence linking specific Biden era policies to the surge in inflation is just really, really weak. And we should know, like, there's also been a war going on in Ukraine. It seems like that has had a noticeable effect, right? Like, especially for things made or grown or found in Russia and or Ukraine. Right. Totally. In terms of household budgets, oil and food is just dominating yeah. everything else in terms of the, the pain they're seeing. And those are shocks that are big enough that they do set off ripple effects. I mean, when oil and food prices just go through the roof, there is a scramble among other people in the economy to try to protect themselves. So mm -hmm. workers really do try to get higher wages in response to that to hold themselves harmless. They're not fully successful, but wages do go up a bit. And so I think it's mostly the shocks, the pandemic and war shocks and some ripple effects. I don't think it's just a consistent set of policy mistakes that we need to unwind. I think what we yeah. need to have happen is the shocks need to stop. That's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, because if you step back and look at this broader picture, like you said, inflation's a global problem. Meanwhile, there is a war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, there's also a pandemic. There are also trade wars going on. I mean, given all of these different factors, these shocks, as you say, are U.S. companies or the U.S. government really making inflation particularly worse here compared to elsewhere in the world? So I'd say we're like if you line up like the 30 richest countries in the world and look at what has happened to inflation there over the past 15 months, we're like in the, the top third. So it's mm -hmm. been a little worse here than like on average or the median, but we're not an outlier. And so we're actually totally in the range of normal. And I think the reason for that is what you just said. A lot of the shocks you just mentioned, they're not U.S. specific. They're not U.S. specific policy failures. They are shocks that have hit global markets, and we have been caught up in that. Josh Bivens, Research Director at the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Department of Education is settling a case that will grant almost $6 billion in debt relief to students. They allege that unscrupulous, mostly for-profit colleges deceive them into overpaying for often useless degrees. Many of these students were veterans, swindled out of their GI Bill educational benefits, and now they're celebrating that decision. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. Jared Toma served in the U.S. Army and then planned to become an engineer when he got out. But he says DeVry University, a for-profit school, drained his GI Bill benefits and encouraged him to take out tens of thousands more in loans. Then he graduated in 2015. Well, what's the degree worth? It's not even worth the paper it's printed on. I've had an extremely hard time finding employment. The Trump administration's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, repealed rules that required schools to prove their degrees led to gainful employment. And her department fought this class action lawsuit, which the Biden administration has now settled in U.S. District Court. Kerry Wofford is with Veterans Education Success. This is a huge deal for many students who were tricked and deceived and cheated by really lousy, mostly for-profit colleges. This is not student debt cancellation for any student. This is only if you were cheated. Also, schools have a limit on how much federal money they can take. But for years, there was a loophole. GI Bill money didn't count against that quota. That made veterans a highly profitable target, says Wofford. 
is veterans like Jared Toma, who were just totally targeted for their GI Bill and targeted in really ugly ways. Now, Toma and his family are about $50,000 out of the red. He's been carrying that debt around for seven years. I was at a loss for words. I was in shock, disbelief, really ecstatic. I, I told my wife first thing. I'm still at a loss for words. I can't believe it's finally at some sort of resolution. And uh, I feel vindicated. The Department of Education says it will send billions of dollars of automatic relief to about 200,000 borrowers in the class action lawsuit. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. With the summer travel season in full swing, airlines are canceling flights and stranding passengers every day. One reason behind the cancellations? There are simply not enough pilots. On the next All Things Considered, we'll talk to a pilot about the shortage and whether travelers can expect relief anytime soon. That's tomorrow afternoon on NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on Marketplace, the state of Russia's economy four months after its invasion of Ukraine. Remember, it's your last chance to triple your support during WBUR's June fundraiser. Your $10 a month gift becomes $30 a month for a year when you give now at WBUR.org. In the forecast, it will be cloudy with showers early tonight, then gradual clearing with lows right around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs right around 80 degrees. And then Wednesday and Thursday, mostly sunny skies both days, highs in the mid-80s. Right now, 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House now through July 24th. Tickets are now available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. And Backbay Life Science Advisors, data-driven strategy and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com. 